to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Pastor Kristen Stone King. Our mission at Epworth is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Together, we encourage each other, challenge each other, and welcome all people on their journey of faith. Lord, I'll never turn back no more. We are a reconciling congregation, meaning that persons of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcomed to help transform our church and our world into the full expression of Christ's inclusive love. We are a sanctuary church advocating for the rights and dignity of immigrants and we stand in solidarity with the movement for black lives. blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message.
lesson this morning from the New Testament comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the man asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Mistress, oh mistress, I will go Leave this house and all that I know Mistress, oh mistress, I will leave here with what family I got left, they're all I hold Mistress, oh mistress, that trunk of gold 
Cause what you got with my children you sold Mistress, oh mistress, don't you cry The price of staying here is too I'm leaving hell. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, my fellow Epworthians. I'm Michael Martin. Your fellow congregant, lay leader, and the giver of the address today. I am once again honored to be here addressing you on the Sunday before Juneteenth. And again, the here to which I refer is the desk in my home office. And within just a year, everything I had to say last year about the strangeness of delivering a spoken message virtually has been rendered obsolete. When it comes to adjusting to a Zoom-oriented existence, and for that matter, how the pandemic has changed everything about everything, we've all, I'm sure, heard it all. So let me spare you all that and simply say that I am, once again, honored to have the opportunity to address you, my beloved congregation, on this, the Sunday before Juneteenth. I keep saying once again, because for those of you who weren't here, again in quotes, I had the same honor last year, and nonetheless, Kristen asked me back. So if any take issue with what I have to say today, take it up with Pastor Stone King. I want to talk today about the nature of the struggle against racism in America and where it might go now, a year after the widely publicized video of the murder of George Floyd change the mood of a nation already struggling through a pandemic and the closing days of a mad presidential administration. I spoke last year of movements, describing the movements to destroy slavery and the movement to end Jim Crow, wrapping my hopes around the empathy for others so eloquently described by Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. I concluded last year, I have hope. I hope, long, indeed pray for another movement, a movement akin to the now revered, increasingly ancient civil rights movement. The urgency of now is what that movement embodied, with white people participating, participating as avidly as their black siblings. We, you and me, could be a part of such a movement. We, you and me, must be a part of such a movement. White America, I said then, had to realize that in the words of the Statue of Liberty poet Emma Lazarus, until we are all free, we are none of us free. What I have seen since last year, all across America and here in Berkeley, is a lot of abruptly raised consciousness on the part of white people and the white institutions they run. Everyone, from everyone, 
from my college roommate to the NFL, the film industry, and most recently, even the Journal of American Medicine has acknowledged either active or passive participation in the institutionalized motors that drive racism in our society and has promised to do better. Consciousnesses were raised and the insidious, powerful, and persistent presence of racism in so much of what we do was acknowledged. For black people, there's been an enormous feeling of vindication. Vindication resulting from truth-telling. It's impossible to describe the many levels of betrayal a black person feels when confronted, as I am so frequently, with racism during a given day. But I would venture that one of the worst elements of racism is the gaslighting, the insistence that it is not even taking place. After all, it's illegal, immoral, and socially unacceptable, so it couldn't be happening. To have the wider world recognize the cruelty that the now convicted Officer Chauvin's knee on Mr. Floyd's neck represented to all of us was vindication. I realize now, I think I read it somewhere. In fact, my fellow congregant, Diane Rush Woods, told me that the California Poor People's Campaign had already conceived of it. But I realize now that what I was wishing for was a third reconstruction. We had the long evil of slavery finally denounced and destroyed by the Civil War, a terrible trauma. It was followed by a period of reconstruction, the first. Then we had the long evil of Jim Crow, emboldened by the demise of the Reconstruction era. It was broken by the trauma of the Civil Rights Movement, during which the sight of marchers being attacked by police dogs and crushed by high-pressure fire hoses was brought into American living rooms. That was followed by a period of Reconstruction, the second. Then we eventually found ourselves in a nation that could tolerate the murder of Trayvon Martin, the murder of Heather Hyatt in Charlottesville, the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina, and the televised murder of Eric Garner. We needed a reconstruction. The third. I love the parable of the Good Samaritan. As you recall, in response to a lawyer challenging him on God's law of loving one's neighbor, Jesus told the parable. It's about a traveler who is stripped of clothing, beaten, and left half dead alongside a road. First a priest, and then a Levite, come by. The priest knowing about love, the Levite knowing about the law. But both cross the road to avoid the man. Finally, a Samaritan happens upon the traveler, and although Samaritans were definitely others, um, despised by Jews, the Samaritan helps the injured man. He tends to his wounds and takes him to an inn where he leaves him with instructions to the innkeeper to take care of him as long as he needs it and to put it on his tab. What I find so instructive in the parable is the insistent lesson that we must become one, truly one, in order to ever, ever reach our goal of racial justice. For a white person in America, becoming truly one with one's fellow black person almost surely requires dedication and sacrifice, emotionally, 
spiritually, financially. It's significant that Jesus is relating the parable to his fellow Jews. Samaritans were, as I said, not mere outsiders, but a despised enemy. And here, Jesus tells a story where the Samaritan is the hero. What I really like, though, is the degree to which the Samaritan gives of himself to help the injured man, who, the whole point being, is not one of his people. I mean, he really puts himself out there. He uses his own oil and wine to dress the man's wound. He puts the man on his own transportation, his ass, and takes him to an inn where he pays for his lodging and leaves him with an open tab. It is made clear that truly loving one's neighbor involves significant cost and risk. He leaves the man with instructions to the innkeeper to care for him until he is well, no matter what the cost. Now, last year, I spent a lot of time explaining the nature and significance of Juneteenth, originally a Texas observance transplanted to California with all the black Texans who came here during World War II, my mother and her family being among them. Since last June, Juneteenth has received more attention and explanation than ever, even becoming an official holiday in some jurisdictions. So I won't go on and on with the explanations, but to be sure, just because it's significant to my hope today, let's hit it once more. Juneteenth celebrates the day, June 19th, 1865, when the slaves of Texas were officially freed, about a year and a half after the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation on New Year's Day, 1863. Of course, there was a war on, and it didn't end until two months before Juneteenth. So it was June 19, 1865, when General Gordon Granger arrived by ship at Galveston with 2,000 United States troops and announced that, quote, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. The reason I wanted to touch on this anew was the fact that the general showed up with a couple of thousand troops. That's significant. In Texas, this was the beginning of Reconstruction. Reconstruction. It's generally thought to have begun with the Federal Reconstruction Act of, 19, of 1867, and it was intended to reintegrate the states of the Confederacy into the Union, and therefore million new, newly liberated slaves. It had the backing, obviously, of many, many in Congress and, and many Northern citizens. And uh, for the brief period that it lasted, federal troops, like those traveling with Gen General Granger, made sure that there was black voting and that election to black people to local, state, and federal offices took place naturally. By 1878, political shifts in Congress and the executive office, however, resulted in the withdrawal of those federal troops and the literal end of an era. That's why we have the frequent announcements of the first black this, fill in the blank, mayor, congressman, senator, uh, etc. since Reconstruction. That's what that means. The abrupt withdrawal of federal troops to enforce federal laws, a compromise reached under the Hayes administration. With that, the southern states took over their own governance the plan was born, anti-black legislation grew and flourished, 
it gave birth to Jim Crow, the version of the South that I grew up with, with whites-only and colored-only signs all over the place. Reconstruction was over. <clears throat> now, this was big. The United States was born with what has been termed often this past year as the original sin of slavery. And after a centuries-long movement culminating with the growing crescendo of the abolitionist movement, the consciousness of the nation was sufficiently moved. A bloody civil war was fought, and that original sin was erased. It was further erased by treaty, then by statute and regulation. Finally, it didn't need to be addressed by court cases because the statute and regulation took care of it. But slavery, and particularly the racism that had always been used to justify its existence in a free nation, had become a way of life. It had not been erased from the hearts and minds of the people devoted to its sinful existence and the money it produced. To enforce the principles for which the Civil War was fought and won, the United States Army had to make its presence known. The former Confederacy was, perhaps, on its way to Reconstruction. A new nation might have emerged from the 19th century carnage. However, the Compromise of 1878, wherein it was agreed that although President Hayes was a Republican and in favor of Reconstruction and the full citizenship of slaves, he agreed to pull out the troops and send them west to fight Indians. What followed, combined with that, let me, let me go on before I go on, combined with that was the 1898 holding by the Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson, which briefly held that separate accommodations for black people and white people were legal as long as they were equal. That gave birth to Jim Crow and the setting up, the careful setting up of separate accommodations. A lot of attention paid to the separate, but not a lot to the equal. What followed was widespread terrorism and violence inflicted, usually with impunity, upon black Americans. We're just recently becoming aware, for example, of the horror. And now, may grace, peace, and mercy be your companions as you venture forth this week. May God bless you and keep you until we meet again. Amen. That took place a century ago in Tulsa. There was similar horror in uh, Rosewood, Florida. There were riots in Chicago and other major, major cities. Lynching was epidemic. Eventually, though, came the second Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement. Growing from the constant, persistent efforts of people like W.B. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph, Marcus Garvey, and Booker T. Washington in the early 20th century, the Civil Rights Movement somehow captured the imagination of America, finally. Montgomery, the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott and the formation of the Southern Leadership Conference pushed the movement into the American consciousness. Emmett Till had been lynched in Mississippi. Four little girls were killed in the bombing of a church in Birmingham. 
American households saw televised news accounts of Alabama police forces quelling demonstrators, women, children, with attack dogs and high-pressure fire hoses. Something about that was too much to take. The mood of the American public shifted. Then in the wake of that shift came the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Fair Housing Act of 1968. The legislation, this legislation, the court cases that followed it, formed the basis of much of the incursion, of, of much of the incursion on racism in America since. This was the second Reconstruction. These laws are the recourse that black people have to defend our rights now. 1968 was an incredibly turbulent year. It saw everything from the Tet Offensive in Vietnam to the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy and the police riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. It also saw positive changes across the nation as colleges and corporations decided that racial diversity was in their best interests. Black people were seen in places that were previously all white like schools, like Congress, elite colleges, and the Supreme Court. Yes, Thurgood Marshall, who had argued Brown versus Board of Education before the Supreme Court, had been appointed by that, to that very court in 1967. Cities with large black populations elected black mayors for the first time. The Congressional Black Caucus was formed in 1969. There were finally enough black congressmen to form a caucus. It was a promising new era during which I personally attended a fancy college and a prestigious law school and entered a profession that made my mother proud. Promise abounded, and why not? Because of Brown versus Board of Education, racial discrimination had been illegal all my life. The integrated schools we attended would make for a happily integrated society, right? Now, living in the real world, of course, I could see that things were not exactly turning out so happily. I could speculate, and we could discuss forever, the reasons for the apparent failure of the Second Reconstruction. It just seemed that the furor, faith, and energy for change that seemed to flow out of the banner year of 1968 was gone by the 1976 bicentennial celebrations of America's historical greatness. I recall remarking to a classmate when I arrived at law school in 1978 that when I had left the Bay Area in 1972, blatant racism had become unacceptable. I could not help but notice, I told him, coining a phrase, the new blatancy. Also, disco had arrived, taken hold, and become trivialized. trivialized. Uh, Frat Row was back in all of its pre-60s glory. Corporate law was at the forefront of most of my classmates' minds. During a post-exam celebration my first year, I, with a group of Chicano classmates, were asked to leave Larry Blake's for being too rowdy. Remember Larry Blake's? Remember me? I was too rowdy for Larry Blake's. When I got to Washington, D.C. to start my law career at the beginning of Reagan's first term of office, Thurgood Marshall had died. Clarence Thomas, viewed widely as his black replacement on the Supreme Court, was confirmed in the ugliest manner to date. The crack 
cocaine epidemic, epidemic and the urban decay in which it flourished hardened America's attitude toward its less fortunate people, its poor people, its black people. Forward-looking, relatively progressive network, network television like Barney Miller gave way to such foolishness as that's my mama. For me, my heart sank when I realized that raising innocent little children was not to be. My little daughter, barely four, had apparently been discussing race and color one day at pre-K. She asked me that evening in a quiet moment, Daddy, is I beige? Now it took me a while to figure out that uh, she was trying to say beige. She had had some uh, conversation with a white classmate who had informed her that she was not black, but indeed beige. I had hoped, vainly it seemed, and I had hoped that I could raise children without having to give them the racial education I got. But it seemed that racial education was going to have to continue for still another generation. By the end of the second decade of this millennium, America had grown accustomed, inured to, news of and even televised evidence of the, re the regular, seemingly routine killing of black people and occasionally brown people by various police agencies. The second reconstruction, it seemed, was over. Then the George Floyd murder emerged on the video that made it famous and changed the world. In my message last year, I described somewhat emotionally the effect it had on me as a person who had been, uh, shall I say, under police control more than once. I also described the reaction of the rest of America and looked forward to positive change that that boded. What I described, I realize now, is a third reconstruction. Here is where Luke's description of Jesus' teaching comes in. Central to my message last year was the point that the only anti-racism movements that have historically gained any traction in America are those wherein everyone, white people included, joined the cause. It seemed difficult, near impossible, for white people in their hearts, minds, and souls to actually feel the pain born on a constant and daily basis by black people. Don't get me wrong. I do not throw blame. But I merely acknowledge the degree to which racism and blindness to racism is at the core of our very culture. Our culture has been carefully and efficiently constructed to make the occurrence and acceptance of racism comfortable. We also live in a world carefully and efficiently constructed to make the fighting of racism by white people uncomfortable. As a result, it seems that an unseen, unnamed force in society historically, but persistently, keeps its metaphorical knee on our neck. Battled by wave after wave of movements toward justice, reconstructions, some more successful than others. It seems, upon casual observation, that the more successful movements are those that capture the hearts, or better, attract the participation 
of white people. Hence my hope for the third re re reconstruction. From what, I can, from what I have described about the first two reconstructions, I can see that the incredible political force and public mood and opinion that goes into sustaining such movements. Really, I only touched on what I learned about the incredible political battles and compromises that go into such eras as the reconstructions I've described. Those politicals and political battles and compromises are reflected on what goes on in society, in the hearts and minds of America and its people. While I have always found the fierceness with which racism and its inherent discrimination is practiced and defended astounding and discouraging, I've always been heartened by the goodness in people's hearts, like that brought forth by the George Floyd trauma. We've seen that such anti-racism momentum is hard to maintain. I have seen, also, just here at Epworth, that it can be maintained. To everything there is a season, and a time for every purpose under heaven. That's Ecclesiastes at chapter 3. From what I have observed in the years since this horrible video surfaced, there has been much change. There's been a change in the overall American attitude, for lack of a better word, and I've been trying to find one, believe me. As a black person, it seems that suddenly, unbelievably, America is on our side. It's as though the graphic image of the up-close murder of one of us suddenly made all of America believe what we've been saying all along. Unlike the Eric Garner case and so many others, the police officers involved in this ugly fracas were immediately fired. As we know, Officer Chauvin was convicted. Over the past year, it seems that everyone is admitting what, that what has been offensive, oppressive, and threatening and dangerous to black people forever is indeed oppressive, offensive, threatening, and dangerous. Lady Antebellum, the country rock trio, has changed its name. NASCAR decided to stop flying the stars and bars at their events. Dr. Seuss's estate dropped its racist imagery. But such change requires persistence. We cannot grow tired at worthies. I noted last year that even the NFL, that wealthy plantation, went on record announcing we, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. The NFL, whose 32 teams have players that number almost 70% black, has two black head coaches. I think we can do better than that. There must be more than renaming and tearing down of statues. That's the easy way. When we changed the name of Bolt Hall because of a racist presentation John Bolt made to the Berkeley City Club regarding the Chinese question, we tacitly excused all those in attendance who presumably applauded and slapped him on the back. When we vilify Hitler as a madman who caused the Holocaust, we excused the hundreds and thousands who helped him do it and the millions 
who enabled its occurrence. We don't need to change the names of San Francisco public schools so much as we need to change the, the crazy history they're teaching or the lack of it. We need to stay the course, believe what we said we believed last year when the pain of this trauma was so fresh. The time to plant, the time to pluck up that which is planted. Our time has come. And so, my fellow Epworthians, again, today I have hope, and I gleefully urge you to join me so that we can stay the course set last year by trauma, that we can maintain the momentum gathered in its wake, that we can carry forth this reconstruction of an America with room to fit us all. I thank you and amen. podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Wherever you're located, we'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. Our online worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at epworthberkeley.org. Or you can fill out an online connect card at epworthberkeley.org backslash connect. Have a great week. Oh, mm-hmm.
Thank you.